News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. Let me read you a little something. Donald Trump, who admires strongmen like Vladimir Putin, keeps kidding, not kidding about holding on to power as president for life. Mike Bloomberg, who admires strongmen like Xi Jinping, wasn't kidding at all when he concocted a state of emergency to justify changing the law so he could hold on to power for four more years. Is this really the future that Democrats want? After all that showy self-reflection from journalists about what they'd missed before Trump's stunning win in 2016, this year's election is following the same stupid script. A party-jumping New York City billionaire with the history of locker room talk, non-disclosure agreements, and naming things after himself, also not releasing his taxes, is rising fast, shaking up a stale party's underwhelming field of contenders. Journalists are flummoxed by a candidate who monopolizes the airwaves, Bloomberg by buying ads, and Trump by performing for the news cameras. And as the political press belatedly picks up on the prospect that, hey, this guy could really win, they don't have the time, resources, or attention span for much reporting on who he is, what he's done, and what that might mean if he's elected president. So I wrote that last Sunday for the Daily News. Right after that, new footage was discovered of Mike Bloomberg in 2015 at Aspen uh, saying a bunch of stuff in defense of stop and frisk. He explained that you can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They... Murderers and murder victims are male, minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York, and that's true in virtually every city. This was part of an extended defense of stop and frisk, and uh, the explosion of it over the first decade of his time in office that he continued to uh, deliver privately and publicly right up until he announced that he was going to be running for president and set that up with a visit to a megachurch in East New York to say hey, I was wrong about that. The funny thing about this speech that's now resurfaced, of course, is one, that it was reported on at the time in 2015. Resurfaced now means people vaguely bother remembering things that have already happened. Two, that this speech, which Bloomberg did not want the video of out, but was reported on at the time and is in Eleanor Randolph's new biography of Bloomberg, matches exactly what he'd said publicly on video again and again and again. So a little like Trump, there's this shocked, shocked bullshit in which we circulate stuff. Look, he's admitted to it with the thing the guy is already publicly saying. So that's what's happening nationally with Stop and Frisk, all of this time with an incredible Professor Christina Greer column at the Daily Beast in which she wrote about how it looks like black voters might be uh, turning to Bloomberg but didn't want to tell it to pollsters yet, which was followed Hours later, by a new Quinnipiac poll showing Bloomberg shooting up to second place among black voters, third mm-hmm. place overall, as Biden's support crumbles. Uh, I strongly suggest you read that. It is called Black Voters Turn to Mike Bloomberg, updated from Our Black Voters Quietly Turning to Mike Bloomberg. So Bloomberg then issued a remarkable second apology. And the first apology in the church was meant to be a one-off check that's done. I've addressed this issue already. When in his rare interviews where he had to answer some questions 
and this came up, he'd say, well, I would have admitted this sooner, but nobody ever brought it up to me, which is, uh, which is a joke, but was just good enough. You couldn't write a story proving that this was a lie or, in fact, people did. And he just sort of continued as that, though that wasn't the case, while spending a fortune. So that's the national conversation on Stop and Frisk with Donald Trump, who's a longtime supporter of Stop and Frisk and in his irregular uh, New York is collapsing tweets would say, bring back Stop and Frisk. Bloomberg was forced to make a second apology after the Aspen remark circulated. And he said, I, apo- I have apologized, you know, already done, asked and answered for taking too long to understand the impact of Stop and Frisk on black and Latino communities. I inherited Stop and Frisk. Hey, Rudy. In an attempt to stop gun violence, it was overused. I cut it back by 95%. I should have cut it back sooner. So, so that's Look. a lot of horseshit to unpack, and, and uh, I'm going to pass it over to Christina to oh, do some goodness. of that unpacking, right. and then we'll talk about stop and frisk here in New York. <laughs> yes, I got some thoughts. So we always have to remember, we keep bringing up, and trust, like, I'm not supporting any candidate right now, so I'm not on anyone's payroll, even though I hear that Bloomberg payroll is real. Um, but we always have to remember with Bloomberg and that third that third term of his – you know, and everyone says he stole the third term. We have to remember, New Yorkers voted for it. Like, he didn't just stay in office the way Trump wants to. I mean, it was a legitimate small-D Democratic vote. So there were enough New Yorkers who wanted him to stick around. Christine Quinn, you know, put her whole career on the line for that to happen. And we see how that shook out. Bloomberg left on top. But... That wasn't something that was like a dictator move in the same sense. It was like it was technically a vote. So we always have to remember that. Um, Here's the way I think about like the president versus Bloomberg right now as far as their control of the media when you were talking about how Trump sort of captures the media and his use of social media. And, you know, always remembering that Bloomberg is a billionaire because he owns a media company. So he fundamentally understands the media as well. It's not like, you know, he makes like I would say widgets or shoes or something like that. Like he owns a very successful multi-dimensional media conglomerate. So much of his book Bloomberg on Bloomberg is about him as a, as, as media mogul and publisher and like his thoughts, which are actually quite interesting about the media and how you manipulate it and how you use it to sell Bloomberg terminals. Exactly. I mean, you know, Ever since we started talking about him for the presidency, we started with, oh, he's worth $50 billion. Then it was $52 billion. Then it was 57 Now we're saying it's worth $61 billion. I mean, clearly he knows what he's doing when it comes to the media stuff. But I think of, you know, when you see, like, a monkey and, like, the, the puppet master, you know, in those old-timey movies, right? And so the monkey's got his little symbols and the puppet master is controlling the monkey. I, I sort of see the president as, like, the monkey and the media is drawn to the monkey, Whereas Bloomberg is the puppet master, and he's actually the one who's, like, controlling narratives of the media in these, like, very intricate ways. Both of them draw the attention of the larger public, but in very specific ways. So I think the reason why Bloomberg doesn't seem as odious, even with Stop and Frisk, is because so many Democrats are turning into single-issue voters this time around, and the single issue is to get Donald Trump out of office. So stop and frisk, although it was terrible, and I will never not say that, right? I hate double negatives, but, you know, I'm struggling. I'm still jet-lagged. But I think a lot of people are just like, yeah, Bloomberg was not great. I mean, we can go down the litany of things that he did over the course of 12 years that were upsetting for a whole host of people, Right. But I think a lot of folks are just like, but you know what? I can't ever see him walking past 
children who've been ripped out of the arms of their parents. Like, oh, well, they shouldn't be here in the first place. Like, I just don't think that he has that spirit in him. I think that he's aloof and he's distant. And sometimes he doesn't understand the kingdom of which he reigns. But, like, if you actually walked him down to said realities, I think that he's not as callous and, like, black-hearted as the current occupier of 1600 Pennsylvania. He was mayor for 12 years. There was no whiff of corruption in City Hall. There was a lot of bribing from City Hall and from Bloomberg Philanthropies to shut outside people up. That's something else. There were almost no personal scandals. There's a lot to be said for that. But the same Q poll that shows Bloomberg shooting up as Biden collapses and other polls are matching that also shows that every Democrat in the race beats Trump by about the same margin. Bloomberg's whole appeal and he's sold this to New Yorkers several times now, is that I'm inevitable. I'm going to win. My money changes all of these dynamics, so you may as well go for me. He did this most significantly in 2009 when he spent $106 million on the books mm-hmm. on his run. I'm sure he spent over $200 million, in fact, to tell people that Bill Thompson couldn't win and there was no race. Mm-hmm. His own polling showed that he had no way to increase his support and that he needed to diminish turnout to win. And he spent a fortune to do that, to encourage people in the democracy not to vote and to just leave it to him. And that turned out to be good enough. That's a very appealing pitch against Donald Trump. Just you can relax and stop staring in shock at the government and just leave things to me. I'm a grown-up and Trump's subsuming everything. But what you see in a blue place like New York City – and I know this is something we've talked about. I was like, is it blue though? In, in a place that is not ele- uh, that is not going to favor Donald Trump, the presidential election, let's agree, um, is that the conversation about stop and frisk, which with Bloomberg was part of a whole series of things with how he handled the police. He boasted he, – the NYPD, he said, I control the seventh largest army in the world at one point, right? Um, he used the NYPD to rouse protesters at the RNC, the Republican National Convention in 2004 that he spoke of and just mass arrests and then you know, um, arrest them now sorted out afterward. Um, you know, he spied on various uh, Muslim groups and said all this like stop and frisk is for your own safety. So there's two important things there. The first is that with stop and frisk, he literally said the only way to uh, protect black communities is to stop everyone and arrest them if necessary. It's not find the kids with guns. It's we have to stop all of the kids. And this is the only way to keep them safe. Now, by the time he left office, Bloomberg knew on a basic level that this wasn't true. Because in his final two years, the number of stops collapsed as this lawsuit proceeded that eventually found the way he'd used uh, th- this policy was unconstitutional. And he very openly said the only way to keep a black neighborhood safe is we have to just stop everyone because otherwise they're going to shoot each other. Right. And Judge Shenlin to make that happen. But here's the thing, and, and he fought that – and then after she said that, he fought that appeal. So he didn't say, OK, now I've learned. Right. And as he brought the numbers down, he, he just said it's wrong. I don't know who this woman is. Um, and it was only when de Blasio dropped that appeal that this shifted. But the, I'm sorry, Chrissy, the thing is, you were going to say. The thing is, all that is true, all that's disgusting, and all that is a black stain on his record. However, in some ways, that's black history because we're dealing in a scenario now where we have a man in the White House that can literally destroy all of us because he's so erratic and insecure He's a germaphobe, so God knows what he's going to do about coronavirus. Bloomberg was in the wrong. But at least he has somebody around him who has some common sense who's just like, listen, you got to say it. And unfortunately, you have to say it again. I know you don't like to apologize. But I just think 
this is just the gut feeling that I'm getting from the conversations that I'm having, that a lot of people did not like Bloomberg, possibly do not like Bloomberg in a lot of ways. But in a head-to-head against the current occupant, he is not a monster. We're not in a head-to-head, though. This yeah. Is, so if, if we get there, right? If we get there, that I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for Bloomberg. I won't have to think right. that hard about it. I really hope we don't get there. And that, uh, but I think what a lot of people keep in mind. Here's the thing, Harry. And I'm not speaking on behalf of all black people by any stretch of the imagination. I'm speaking on behalf of the ones that I've actually had long conversations with and studied over the course of the years. Right? Black people always have to vote with white people in mind because we know that sometimes you all don't do the right thing. So that means we always have to sort of think about people in our own party and how there are certain issues and policy spaces, and this is black women in particular, where it's just like because we're the canaries in the mine, we can see it's like this person is horrible. Either white voters don't see it, they don't care, whatever it may be. So sometimes in voting strategically, we don't necessarily vote for our first choice or even our second choice. We vote for the choice that will be better than the alternative of someone else winning from said party, right? And I think Bloomberg's kind of that person. It's like in an ideal world, first of all, in an ideal world, we'd have a much better crop of candidates, right? I mean, the fact that like most of the people in their 40s and 50s are gone, almost all the candidates of color are gone, um, you know, the the selection is not that great. We've got, you know, someone whose heart's exploding, another person who's calling people pony thieves. Like, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not the best crop. But I think black power bases are always intrinsically tied to white power bases in this political spectrum. And we know that the white electorate does not do what it should do, Democratic, big D Democratic electorate, doesn't do what it should do when it's called upon to do it. Trump got massively outspent in 2016 by Hillary Clinton. Um, He lost the popular vote. He managed to win the electoral college. But he, he and he was doing this. He started running as a graph to get himself rich and, and sort of accidentally ends up right. in the White House. But he was massively outspent in that effort. So when I'm looking at polls that show all the candidates um, doing about the same against uh, against Trump and I'm seeing Bloomberg selling himself as the anti-Trump and saying his money makes this inevitable, mm-hmm. that, that, that does worry me. Um, and it is as with Trump, uh, only I can save us. You know, it's a very hard sale. It's like, you know, you, you must get on board with this now. If I look at New York for but one look second. At, look at the alternative, though, right? Elizabeth Warren, a lot of, let's just, people I've spoken to are like, if I, if I could count the number of white men who have told me to my face, I'm not voting for Elizabeth Warren. These are white Democratic men, right? So they hated Hillary Clinton, 2016, but... You know, if Elizabeth, this is in 2016, if Elizabeth Warren ran, then I would vote for her. But Hillary Clinton is just, you know, she's the devil. Why? Can't really tell you, but I would vote for Elizabeth Warren in a hypothetical scenario. This is, you know, four years ago. Fast forward, it's 2020. They're like, yeah, I can't vote for her. Why not? It's like, oh, I'll just either stay home or, you know, I'll write in, you know, whomever. And I was just like, right, because what is happening in the world doesn't affect your life. Right. So the fact that you're telling me straight up off the bat, you're not going to vote for. So strategically, there are people who are thinking, wow, if we know that X percent of Democrats straight off the cuff aren't going to vote for Elizabeth Warren, then maybe she shouldn't be the person. Right. Then you've got Biden, who's like sinking fast. I don't know what's going on in that brain. You've got Obama who's sitting on the sidelines. Dog face ponies. No, you lying dog face pony thief. And. Most black, most black people my age, the only reason why we know about John Wayne is either if our grandparents had it on the telly 
or we're thinking about Public, Public Enemy. Enemy. Yeah. F John Wayne and Elvis. <laughs> like, both of them. So I'm like, Biden. So I think the inevitability of Bloomberg is he's essentially saying, none of these people are ideal. You know I'm going to spend the money. You know I'm going to cross the finish line. So, like, get in where you fit in. You don't know the second one. That's that's part of the hard sell. <laughs> well, we don't know any of them are going to cross the finish we, we line. Don't know, right. We don't know, know anything about any of this. I must point out here that Vanilla Ice covered Fight the Power. I just learned this. I'm, I'm 15 what? years late. Uh, covered Fight the Power and removed the Elvis verse. Everything terrible comes out of Florida. I don't know if we need to listen to Vanilla Ice. <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's put that on. Never met um, shit the me. I will say, I'm confessions. I was a huge Vanilla Ice fan in seventh grade. I okay. just see a schizophrenia, though, when I look at the criticisms of Bloomberg now and looking at this like we're uncovering revelatory new information when, in fact, we're just looking at his basic record. Mm-hmm. And Bloomberg thinking he can fix this with a bullshit tweet where he says, I drop, stop, and frisk by 95%. Right. So, so it, it and peaked that's, at 700,000. Well, that's the thing, though, where I'm just like, Bloomberg? Don't lie. Don't double down on a lie. Like, what I found fascinating about his first apology was that it was, <laughs> it just felt like a grown black person. Where he's like, listen, first time, last time. I'm apologizing right now. It's the last time you're going to get this apology. And it's done. Like, we're moving on. I don't want to hear about it again. Like, it was very much like, you know I have to say this, but like, I'm saying it so we don't have to talk about it again. So now that he has to do this second apology. Yes. This is where I think he's in dangerous water because now he's like, well, I inherited it and then I did this. It's like, okay, so now you're telling Whoppers. Your first apology, you kind of laid it out and it's pretty straightforward. This one, you're doing revisionist history. It's like, dude, we all know you did the shit. Like, don't try and change it now. You already apologized for it. So, like, stop with the apology tour, which I know you want to, but do not try and put this on Giuliani. Don't try and put it on de Blasio. Don't try and make yourself like a hero. Just be like, I messed up. I stayed messing up. I stayed messing up until mid-2019, until I realized I had to say something. So, like, you've got enough black people on your squad who you're paying very well, apparently. But you've got enough black people on your squad where it's like somebody should just say, listen, we all know you did it. It's not like people are confused. Where people will turn against you is if you start lying. Because part of Bloomberg's appeal is that he seems like a straight shooter, even if when, even when it's things you don't want to hear. That was Anthony Weiner's appeal, too, right? Oh, no. So so <laughs> Michael Goodwin in the New York Post today, Wednesday, who speaks with Trump fairly often, is uh, epigrammatic and is a useful a read. Great word. He, uh, he rips Bloomberg. He says... Uh, the problem with this new apology is that money is no substitute for authenticity. Mm-hmm. These days, that's the real political gold. Bloomberg had it and squandered it in this uh, pander bit. Yeah. Um, a couple that, things. I think that's genius, though, right? I mean, part of what Bloomberg is selling is like, listen, yeah, I'm rich as hell, but I'm I'm honest and I'm straightforward. This second apology makes you seem like a two-bit, 50-cent politician. The problem is that he says – he's taking Yang's thing. It's, it's, it's math, you know, and God we trust. Uh, Ugh, all others bring ugh. data, right? Yang, don't come and to New York. The data – that's – Yang, Trump Jr. is going to be the worst race ever. The data is going – the data here came in, right? Like it's hard to know because you don't want to stop policing or let people die to test things. 
And so his answer was just constantly more stops. And part of the defense was there were always these stops under Rudy. They just weren't counting them. So mm-hmm. all the other numbers were false, and these are true numbers now. Right. And it's just for safety. But as the number of stops plummeted, the number of murders kept dropping, first on Bloomberg's watch and then <clears throat> and then on, on de Blasio's. So, so you actually have a sort of solid answer to this question. You have 700,000 stops and uh, 560-ish murders in 2013. By 2016, right, you're looking at under 20,000 stops and under 300 murders. Mm-hmm. So it's not like stopping everyone was actually helping you find the bad guys. It was, in fact, just stopping everyone. Two, two quick interesting things. Gregory Meeks, who became the boss of the uh, Queen's Democratic Party after, uh, after a certain AOC womp Joe Crowley, um, has just endorsed uh, Mike Bloomberg um, Wednesday morning, mm. which is mm, interesting. Mm, mm. My feeling is Queens reigns supreme, but Queens is Queens is a little weak now, and it's trying to find its footing. Uh-huh. Um, and in the meantime, there's this totally separate conversation about stop and frisk in New York, where following a, a series of news cycles and events, where first you had uh, this fairly ridiculous, I thought FTP fuck the police set of protests in the trains and then people on the right um, taking this fairly small and ridiculous thing that, that, that was pointlessly disruptive and like let's spray paint stuff on the walls and screw up the Omni readers and curse a bunch right. and like set, talk some stuff about violence, right, toward the police. But but was of no, I thought, great consequence. You had people on the right amplifying the hell out of this. Like this is what's coming. This is what these people want. This was followed by by one guy making two assassination attempts at police officers in the Bronx, which was followed in turn by various police union officials um, turning on the mayor again. There's a strong repeat of 2014. The police commissioner saying clearly the protest caused this to happen in some way, which there's no no evidence of. He's also said – Bail reform is why some some crimes are are, are rising, you know, in the calendar month of January without backing that up. And you have a rise last year in the number of stops. So remember, we were talking about nearly 700,000 at their peak under Bloomberg. And now we're looking at a 22 percent increase in 2019 um, where you had 13,000 from nearly 700,000. And that's creeping up. Corey Johnson is calling this out, called the number pretty alarming. Um, Shea, the, the commissioner, said, yeah. actually, the problem was that, that the count wasn't so real before, which is always you know, part of this answer. Mm-hmm. So really, we're doing the same stuff, but, but the numbers are showing a rise that isn't there. This also comes up a lot with sexual assault. As those numbers rise, this is good because more people are reporting. But I mean, I think you know, part of what Corey was pointing out, and rightfully so, it's like, okay, so not only are these, these stops creeping up, Fine. You're saying that this is proper reporting. But why is it that we're in the 90 percent range of black and Latinx people being stopped? Right. I mean, that's that's the bonkers piece. I do want to back up just a second. We have to always remember Bill de Blasio won the election of 2013 as the 109th mayor of New York City based on decreasing stop and frisk. I mean, that was such a huge issue. And I feel like you know, we know we have some problems with the mayor. I have some thoughts on him. But I think we can't ever forget just how important it was to have an elected official not only say that, run on it, and shout out to John Lowe too because you were the one who, who sort of was the spirit of it, but also once he got into office, 
in the, initially before we started giving away cops for, you know, you get a thousand new cops for no reason, even though nobody asked for it. Um, but before that, <laughs> before I turned on him, I was, I thought it was really important that he actually made that a central focus of his campaign because I don't think that Bloomberg or a lot of New Yorkers really understood how severe stop and frisk was under the Ju- – I'm, I'm going to say Giuliani and Bloomberg eras. I mean, it just like – In East New York, it was, it was one communities. stop per person per year in its peak years. So every single person on average, mm-hmm. right, is going to get stopped once. Ninety percent of those people – we're going to be found to have done nothing wrong. Most of the rest were people nominally like taking out or, or being found with small amounts of marijuana. Mm-hmm. So you are talking about a massive racialized dragnet. I always think back to to protect the village. You know, we had to burn it. the The idea was the only way to protect these neighborhoods was to just stop and enforce, in some ways, on everyone, and in a lot of ways, on young men. That, that if you're a young man in this neighborhood, the only way to keep you safe is that you have to be continually policed. And there is a sense in that of, of an, an occupying army. So de Blasio, because he said this and gets held to it, right, we have this very small increase, at least by the numbers, and this gets called out and asked about immediately. And this is happening again as, as the, the major crime numbers have remained at a near historic lows that you have to account for. And I think there's something very healthy about that. And just saying you have armed authorities who are allowed to, to, to carry weapons and to stop people, mm-hmm. which goes back to a 1960s Supreme Court decision, which is really what, what Bloomberg inherited, right, J- just on, on reasonable and generalized suspicion, that you need to explain why this is happening. And it's the difference between treating, I think, a lot of black New Yorkers as occupants versus citizens. Uh, so to me, this is like a very healthy display of, of political power and accountability in a lot of ways. But when – Mike Bloomberg is running for president and trying to explain this away to a somewhat radicalized Democratic Party um, on the one side. And then and then the mayor who actually did these reforms is getting hit for these very small increases on the other. It does seem to me that there's some incoherence between our urban politics and our national politics mm-hmm. now as Trump has become a uh, totalizing force. And if you know, Bloomberg is still better than Trump, and that—that's sort of the the standard. Is, it, should that be the standard for, for for cities, or do we just need to have a completely new era of policing? And all this is happening. Last thing, while there's this huge fight about bail reform and the state senate, which is solidly Democratic now, but not as solidly as the Assembly, mm-hmm. for reasons involving Bloomberg giving two million dollars to the Republicans of the state senate to keep them in power, um, while he was mayor. He put this in the New York Times as he persuaded Republicans. He didn't mention that he was a Republican or the persuasion here right. literally meant paying people. Doesn't um, it always with him? So, so the, these these newly Democratic state senators led by ASC, um, as as I, I want everyone to just be a something soon. Now. <laughs> but but they want to reform the the bail reform reform to keep cash bail out of it entirely, but to give judges back uh, considerable discretion. To decide if, if people who have committed mostly felonies uh, should should have to remain locked up. So it would no longer be a rich-poor thing, but it would be this judge says you're dangerous, which gets into some of these same questions of who judges think are dangerous right. as a fix to this law, which has become a real political albatross at least uh, judging from poll numbers. Although mm-hmm. it remains to be seen if this is actually what people are voting on. Right. Hmm. 
That was a lot, Harry. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to get better with that one, no, one thought at a time. Right. No, because there, there are quite a few. Because bail reform, I mean, as, you know, the president ad-libs in his State of the Union address about how he's nominating all these judges around the country, I always think about sort of bail reform. And it's like, I don't think that there should be, you know, rich person, poor person justice, right? We both do the same crime. But if I can pay for bail and you can't, you sit in Rikers and I go free. That's highly problematic. I think a lot of us who listen to this podcast would agree. But it does make me a little nervous giving judges discretion because we know that not all judges look at defendants in the same way. And so that that does worry me to sort of give the power to sort of one individual. Um, all right. So here's here's a question that I can't seem to answer myself. You're, you know, like when we talked about my piece for The Beast uh, a few days before we published it, I had like a really strong feeling in my bones, right? And so that's why I wrote it in like 15 minutes and just kind of poured out of me. And then, you know, we sort of made it happen. Here's the piece that I'm, I can't figure out. And I know this country well. Like I pride myself on knowing this country. Um, I think that this country is deeply anti-Semitic. And I don't know where a Bloomberg president, like, let's just say he becomes the nominee. I don't know how that shakes out with certain gray areas of the population. I feel like the people who are never going to vote for a Democrat are never going to vote for a Democrat. Who cares? But then there are those, you know, those people in, like, the margins where I don't know how they'll behave. And I'm confused. Bloomberg's go-to line when he didn't run previously and he wanted to, like in 2008, was that uh, he just didn't think America was going to go for a short, divorced Jewish billionaire. <laughs> I was forgetting his divorce. I mean, listen, we're going for a sexual predator who's thrice married with a wife who has questionable citizenship. I mean, like, clearly we'll go for anything these days. Who has, like, active sexual assault cases against him. So... I mean, maybe, but that's not religion. And that's, you know, we do have a long history in this country of sexual assault. We do have a long history in this country of racism. We do have a long history in this country of just, like, shady grifters. So, like, Trump does actually fit, like, a historic model. Bloomberg, I don't know if he does. And I don't know. There's 600 billionaires in America, and four of them have been heavily involved in uh, this election cycle. Uh-huh. Um, counting Starbucks guy. He was gonna. He was gonna run. Howard oh, Schultz. that's right. He sure was. Sit down. So, so that leaves Tom Steyer, Mike Bloomberg. How did Steyer get his money? Donald Trump. Oh, okay. I'll look it up. That leaves uh, Tom Steyer, Mike Bloomberg, and uh, Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump 600. a billionaire? I'm not. I'm not calling him a billionaire. I don't believe it. Then that, that's one of Bloomberg's go-to lines. Two billionaires. Right. Who's the other one? Who's the other one? I love it. It's great. It's so shady. I love his quips. I have to say that. I I, I, I do, but I don't – I think he thinks this is an electoral strategy. I think that the Trump has done bad things to decorum. Ship has sailed. He plainly has. I, I don't think we're arguing about it. But just saying let's bring that back, I don't think that that helps. And I don't think getting into the dick measuring contest, which Trump quite literally tries to get into with various with candidates. But here's the thing. It, I think, it's, it's helpful. Like I, I think you do get into pig wrestling territory and, that way. And you can't tell the difference. But here's what I think is interesting. He's clearly already in Trump's head because, one, the president has tweeted out, you know, Bloomberg's a racist and then had to delete it because it's like, This about hey, the pot. stop and frisk stuff. Yeah, it's like, really, though, dude? Literally every day you're talking about how great 
it was, it is. You refuse to apologize about the Central Park Five. And now that you want to court the blacks to get X percent, you realize that that's a failed strategy because the vast majority of black America despises you and sees you as the naked racist that you are. Or, or so just like, want white, white suburban uh, uh, women in particular oh, to that's, comfortable that's voting what that for was you all as about. opposed to actually appealing to black that voters. Was, yeah. That was – that whole State of the Union had very little to do with black people. He's going to try and get sort of those weak-leaning black men, that the 14% that voted for him last time. He's trying to keep them. And then – but that whole spiel about the blacks and unemployment was specifically for white people, white women in particular, in the suburbs. Like, that's cut and dry. But I think Bloomberg versus – Trump, I think that he's already – Bloomberg's already in Trump's head because Bloomberg does know – or Trump knows that Bloomberg does have more money and we know that that's, that's something that makes him very insecure. Um, and he's also friends with all the circles that Trump just can't get in. Like even his, his money has never been able to buy him into these circles that Bloomberg has been able to buy himself into. So I don't know. I'm just – the I don't know. You know, I don't like when I can't call things as a political I, I just, scientist. And that to me is like a variable that I'm intrinsically familiar with, having gone to school with white people my whole life. Um, so I do recognize the anti-Semitism because people say things when they don't think that <laughs> you're paying attention. Um, but I don't know how that variable shakes out. What I know is that every January – we talk about the uh, personalities and the people involved. And when there's a sitting president on the ballot, including Donald Trump, that we don't know how those parts play out. They're easier to identify and to talk about and to have a conversation about the personalities of the people involved, their backgrounds and their records, and that we're largely just having a referendum on the, the, the state of the economy, the state of any wars yeah. and some other stuff. And that the rest of this is, is you know, so that we can fill fill air. That's always... Right. I mean, what worries me is that the economy, on paper at least, looks good. And we know that when the economy looks the way it does right now, the incumbent stays in office. That's just what it is. Now, the economy is different from people's real lived experiences with money. But when we're thinking about stocks and, and sort of how rich people feel, rich people right now feel good. They give two shits about what's going on at the border and what's going on in anyone else's communities. The economy is saying your life is good and your life is going to continue on the path. I think that that's the electoral strategy of the president. And he recognizes that those people are the ones who will somehow make this reelection happen for him. I'm going to check the tape here when we get to uh, November and uh, see what we're kicking ourselves about. Uh, I've been wrong before. Not often. (laughs) Frequently for me. It's comforting in a way. (laughs) No, I just – what I always tell my students is like trying to get them to hone in on their political instincts. And so even if you're wrong in the end, but why is that your political instincts are are pointing you in a particular direction? And so that's what I'm always trying to get them to sort of think about. If you have a theory or a nudge, why is it? It's clearly rooted in something. So that's what I'm toying with. I'm very happy that my first – Political instinct from last week tended turned out to be correct. F A Q. Air on F A Q N Y C is hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. Our episode producer is Adam Kamara. 
next week. Both Professor Greer and Mr. Siegel will be out of New York City. So enjoy. There may or may not be a special guest episode. We'll be back the week after that. Remember that you can't spell Mike and Ike with F-A-Q. And we'll see you then. Goodbye.